Today's reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 57 to 79. Hear God's word. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to the father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning again, and welcome to Christ Community's downtown campus. Um, a while back, uh, when I was in college, I was a youth intern at a church, and somehow had convinced um, some parents that it was a really good idea for a youth leader and myself to take a couple of the senior high guys on a hiking trip in the Smokies. Um, so we make it down to the Smokies, and the trip goes well. The first day of hiking goes really well. Um, we have enough time to cook some ramen over the fire um, and then turn in for the night, you know. Um, of course, ramen. That's the key staple for hiking. Good carbohydrates, right? Um, well, in the middle of the night, and how many of you have ever been in the middle of the woods in the middle of the night? Yeah, I mean, it gets dark. It's, it's a lot different than being in the middle of the city in the middle of the night. I mean, it can get so dark, you can't almost see your hand in front of your face dark. And on top of that, some rain had moved in, which is great when you're hiking, by the way. And the cloud cover had took away the little light we did have of the stars and the crescent moon. Um, I remember when we were hiking. And it was at that moment, in the darkest of the night, when we turned in, that we realized we weren't alone in our camp. Actually, something pretty large was rummaging through our stuff. And, you know, it wouldn't have caused too much alarm, but two things. One, we were eating our ramen, and since it started to rain, we thought the rain would dampen any smell that the ramen would give off, and so we didn't put away our dishes. Classic guys, right? Okay, 
So we didn't put away our dishes and we didn't put them in the bear bag. And yes, you heard me right, a bear bag where you take your foodstuffs and your pots and your pans and your garbage and you stick it in a bag 20 feet in the air so that bears don't smell it and come check it out. Now that's the first part. The second part is the first day we were hiking, we came across this guy who was smiling from ear to ear looking at the trail and he said, hey, how are you doing? This is what you do when you're on the trail. And he said, oh, I'm doing great. Oh, why? What's, what's so great? Oh, they just reopened this trail. Oh, why was it closed? Oh, because there were so many different bear sightings on the trail and going in the camps that they didn't think it was safe, so they shut it down for a while. And now they figured, why not? We'll try it again. So we'll open it up. And here, look, here's a, ball, a bear print. Oh, excellent, excellent. Um, so with those two things in the back of our minds, I have these senior high guys huddled together, you know, shaking. I, of course, was fine. No, I wasn't. I was huddled with them. And we hear this, 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 this ruckus going on in the camp. And so I, I slightly pull back, you know, the, the sliver for the tent to try to get a lookout, but it's too dark. I can't make out anything that's going on out there. And there's no way I'm going to turn on a flashlight, right? <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, there's no way that's going to happen. So we sit there and there was hardly any sleep that happened that night. I remember there was a lot of praying and even remembering some of these teenage guys praying, you know, making deals with God. God, if you get me out of this, I'll do anything. I'll do anything, even if I have to become a pastor like Gabe. And I was like, hey, you know. So not only are we scared, I'm insulted. But we're, we're sitting there, and the only thing we could really hold on to was that the sun will rise, for the night is almost over. The sun will rise, for the night's almost over. And and we all know this, everything's harder in the dark, isn't it? Everything's harder in the dark. You feel alone, you get tired in the dark, you, you get afraid, you feel helpless. And we've all had that moment in our life, that night, where we felt like the sun was never going to rise. That moment you're sitting in a hospital waiting room, trying to find out what's going on, longing for your cell phone to ring, to get the good news that everything is okay, looking out your window, waiting for your child to pull in the driveway, hoping and praying that justice will ring out on the courts and be carried out in the streets. And so when we go looking for light, in the midst of those dark nights, we go looking anywhere we can find it, our family, our work, our money, our sex lives, we do the right thing in front of the right person to get the right pat on the back, but at the end of the day, they're just flashlights and matches. When what we really need is the sun to rise, for God to show up, Right? Well, we're not the first people in the, in the world to, to wrestle through a dark night. Actually, we come to the nation of Israel who, who knows exactly what it means to sit in the darkest of nights. Actually, for 400 years, God doesn't say a peep. He doesn't say a peep. And I like the way that C.S. Lewis describes in his Chronicles of Narnia at a different juncture, but I think it fits here well. It was, it was always winter, but never Christmas for Israel. Always darkness and never light. Always darkness and never light. Can you imagine that? Until we get to the first century and God does something. He shows up to a guy, a priest named Zechariah, right? And in this moment, we get a glimmer of hope. A glimmer of hope amidst all this darkness that maybe God's got something in store. And it seems at first blush like, what a strange way to save the world. And maybe we go one step further and start asking the question, what kind of hope is this that we have in the midst of the darkness? What's going on here? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, this kind of hope, longing 
for the sunrise. And to kind of give you a little bit of the backstory, Zachariah and Elizabeth, or as I like to call them, Zach and Liz, right? They've been trying their whole life to have children, their whole life. And finally, now they're elderly and they've kind of given up any hope of having a family of their own. Until one day, Zach's walking to work and he comes to the temple and God sends an angel named Gabriel. And Gabriel says, hey, you're going to have a son named John and John is going to prepare God's people for God's long-awaited presence. But Zach had been sitting in the dark for so long, he doesn't receive this news maybe in a way we would describe as great, you know? And so God disciplines him with silence as a sign to Zach, to Liz, to others who are looking on, that God will fulfill what he said he will fulfill. And today we step back into that story. Nine months later, Liz is healthy, John is born healthy, and we're beginning to see the early signs of God redeeming his people in Jesus. How many of you have ever gotten up early enough to watch the sunrise? Any of you? <laughs> the night people are like, I know a sunset, um, but no, a sunrise. And, and actually, it's a beautiful experience, isn't it? And Zechariah, when he, when he looks forward to God's coming, he describes it in this picturesque way as a sunrise. And what he says in actually chapter 1, verse 78, here at the tail end of this poetic, prophetic proclamation, that's good peas right there for you. Yeah, he says in verse 78, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Not it might, not maybe, but it's going to happen. And it's this kind of hope in the midst of darkness, each and every single one of us need to hold on to. The sun will rise for the night is almost over. And we join Zach today at the dawning of a new day. And we're going to see three ways this kind of hope in Jesus changes everything. So if you haven't already, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 57. If you're using one of our community Bibles, you can find that passage on page number 556. When the sun begins to rise, the first thing that we see that changes within us is that we see more clearly. When the sun begins to rise, we see more clearly, and that makes just logical sense when the sun rises in our everyday lives, of course. Now, when we get to Zach and Liz's story, okay, in chapter 1, verse 57, Liz gives birth to John, and everything's going great. I don't know how I would respond if I found out my grandparents had a kid, but everybody, all the relatives, all the neighbors, they come, they're celebrating God's merciful gift that Zach and Liz now have a child. And what's interesting is we get to the eighth day, which is custom within Jewish culture via the law, the Old Testament law, that now is the time to circumcise John and also to make his name official. And all of the relatives are like, you know what, Liz? I think his name should be Zechariah after his dad. This is what you do in the culture. This is, it's all about family, keeping the name going, honoring the father and the grandfathers and the great-grandfathers by naming them the names of their parents or their grandparents. And Liz is awkward and is pretty adamant, and actually, if you look in the language, she goes, no, his name is John. And so you can imagine the relatives. It's eight days after birth, okay? Liz is a little old. She had a pretty traumatic experience. She just gave birth. Let's go talk to Zach about this. Of course, he's going to want his kid named after him. Who wouldn't, right? And so they go to Zach, and they start making these signs. Remember, he's disciplined with silence. He's mute. He can't talk. 
And so he said, you know, he gives them some signs, and then they go and grab a tablet, and he writes on there, his name is John. And everyone's blown away. And at that moment, John's, or Zach's mouth is opened. And he begins praising God and blessing God's good name. And when his mouth is opened, everyone's eyes are opened to the fact that God is doing something really amazing in this family, such that, such that it actually percolates out that, that fear is in the community and then it spreads to the whole region. Everybody is talking about this family and about this baby, such that they're saying, what does God have in store for this child? What's going on here? This is really strange. And the Zach that we come to here nine months after the interaction there in the temple, he's a pretty different guy, isn't he? When God first showed up, he thought it was just about him and his family's way of doing things. He couldn't think outside of the concepts of his own life situation. But when God broke in and nine months of sitting there mute, finally he sees what God is doing is bigger than him and it's changed his very decision-making framework. You see, when the sun begins to rise, we see more clearly. We start to see the things that we've been missing in our lives, things that were hidden in darkness, And it changes our very decision-making framework. Our priorities get switched around in the sunlight, right? I love what C.S. Lewis, he's famous for saying this as well. I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I want to ask us here this morning, how many of your decisions are you making as if you're still living in the dark? How many of your decisions are you, are you making as if the sun hasn't written, risen? What have you been missing? What have you been missing? You see, God has this deal that when he comes and works in our lives, he, he has a tendency of shining some light on the sin that's in our lives, our destructive patterns. And actually, any obstacle, anything that's in our lives that's an obstacle to his good purposes in our lives. And for us, many times that means we like the darkness way better than we like the light because there's certain aspects of our life we don't want God to meddle in. And we want to see what we want to see sometimes or maybe more than sometimes. And so we close our eyes and in stubbornness, we'll go and sit in a corner rather than let God really start meddling in our lives. And this is why in the Christian faith, this is really important. Many times, of course, we talk about as human beings, we are broken and sinful human beings. But there's another component to this story as well. We're not only sinful, we're also situated human beings. Meaning, there are plenty of things in our life that, we, that actually stem more from culture rather than from Christ. They may not even be damaging wholeheartedly, but they're keeping us from following what God has for us to do. Sometimes they are very damaging, sometimes they're not. But the, so, so, so sometimes we can do this in our lives where we think, oh, Jesus really wants this for me in my life. When in reality, what we've done is we've taken cultural values and we've said, actually, the culture really wants this for my life. And when we come to follow Jesus, when we find this hope in him, we find a hope that's actually very countercultural in many ways. And that this hope, it challenges our biases, it challenges our broken perspectives. When the sun begins to rise, we see more clearly. 
And what this usually means is when we see more clearly is we see how we've missed the boat in areas of our life that we used to think were fine. And so we have to buck the norms, buck the norms, which may cause some people around us to actually wonder what on earth is going on in your life. That is so different than what I was expecting. Now for you, it may not be naming your child something like it was for Zachariah. Maybe it is, probably not. Um, But for you, it may be how you organize your lifestyle. If you have a healthy income, instead of organizing, for example, a life of extravagance, you actually choose a life of radical simplicity that gives you a large margin for radical generosity to the the disenfranchised in our city, to family and friends who are going through tough times, to your church. And maybe it's not your lifestyle that you need to buck the norms. Maybe it's deciding where you live, why you live where you live, who you date, how you date someone, whatever. There there are all these different categories that when Jesus enters our life, when the sun begins to rise, we see more clearly. And as you think about your own life, what have you been missing? Because you want to close your eyes or you want to pursue the darkness rather than the light. Now, when we return to our story here, something happens. The, The whole community and actually the region is struck by fear, but something uniquely, something unique happens in Zechariah. And and this is what leads us to our second point. When the sun begins to rise, we actually fear more rightly. When the sun begins to rise, we fear more rightly. Zach, he knows the fear that comes from the brutality of Rome. When he hears the cries of his young baby boy, he hears the cries of the oppressed that surround him. I find the irony of that. That was perfect timing. I have to give Ryan a high five on that. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, we can't plan that stuff. That's just God doing his wonder. Um, but when you hear the cry, when he hears the cries of his, his young boy, he, and, and he, it echoes with the cries, the oppressed around them because their beliefs had been ridiculed, their property confiscated, their humanity diminished, their livelihoods taxed to the point of depression. And yet Zechariah, whose name literally means God remembers, okay, He remembers, when we look down in verse 72 and 73, what does he remember? He remembers God's promise. He remembers his holy covenant. He remembers the oath he had sworn back all the way to Abraham. I mean, this has got some history. And notice the repetition. Promise, oath, covenant are three ways of saying the same thing because this is so crucial. And now with this promise that God is to visit and redeem, that he's coming. And the promise is that those enemies, those oppressors, those who hate them, they will no longer fear them. There's a day coming where that fear of the oppressors, the enemies, those who hate them will be abolished. And when he looks at his son, he sees the prophet of the Most High, the final preparations for God to come. And Zach is no longer controlled by fear. He's no longer controlled by fear because he holds to the promise. Now, I don't want you to hear me saying that there is no place for fear in the Christian life. But there's a key difference between fear in the darkness and fear in the light. Fear in the darkness and fear in the light. When the sun begins to rise, we fear more rightly. What do I mean? When when, when fear comes upon us in the darkness, it stems from the unknown around us. We can't see what's happening, so we start thinking the worst. We can't see what's causing our fear, so we don't know how to stop it. And slowly, fear 
consumes us. The fear of the unknown consumes us. It controls us and it paralyzes us. Have you ever been there? Going back to the example of us guys huddled together in a tent at the beginning, we didn't know what we didn't know. I mean, the, the, the major fear that paralyzed us and controlled us was the fear of the unknown of what was outside of the tent. The fear of the unknown of what was outside of our tent and what it was going to do to us inside the tent. And we're paralyzed, we're controlled. But the difference between fear and darkness and fear and the light is that fear and the light is actually rooted in what is known around us. It's, what is, it's, it is, it's, it's rooted in what is known around us. It's healthy and it's appropriate. For example, you see the edge of a cliff and it's you know a couple hundred feet drop. Healthy fear says don't go near the edge of the cliff. That's appropriate. You see someone waving a knife, acting quite a bit irrational. Your goal isn't to go give them a hug. There's an appropriate, well-placed fear that's for your good. And such that, and, and when we start to understand the difference here between fear in the darkness and fear in the light, because fear in the light, instead of controlling us, it compels us. Fear in the light, you know what's around you, you assess the information, and it compels you to make the wise decision, right? Instead of controlling you, it compels you to make the wise decision. And so when you go to the book of Proverbs, and you start to assess the wider uh, revelation of God, you listen to the wise sage in Proverbs chapter 1, and he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because you know who God is. You look at his creation. He's the creator of the universe. Most powerful, the fact that he would create us to even think about how he created us. It's pretty phenomenal. He's astounding. And then when we think about who we are, his creatures, who have missed the boat on many occasions, it's there we find an appropriate awe before God, an appropriate fear, such that changes our life to now live rightly before him, to live rightly before him. And so I want to ask us the question this morning, how does misplaced fear control you? How does misplaced fear control you? Because for some of you, the biggest hurdle in your faith walk isn't doubt. It's not a question you can't find an answer to. For some of you, that's it, or maybe that's part of it. But for, you, for some of you, the biggest hurdle in your, your faith is actually fear, fear of the unknown. You've been hurt too many times. Can a God of the universe really love me that much? And a fear in the darkness, it consumes you, it dominates you. How does misplaced fear control you? Maybe you never step out because you have a fear of failure. What if? What if I don't make it? Maybe, maybe you never reach out because you have a fear of rejection. You've been hurt too many times. What if she doesn't reciprocate? What if he really doesn't love me? Maybe you never speak out because you're afraid of being found out or labeled too conservative or too liberal or the stereotypical this or the token that. And we try everything we can to avoid fear, to fit in, to hide in the background. But the problem is we can't run from fear. We can't run from fear. When the sun begins to rise, though, we can fear more rightly. And that's why when you get to verses 74 and 75, Zach longs for the day when, here at the end of verse 74, we might serve him, serve God, 
without fear. But you have to look at the context here. Without fear of the oppressors, the enemies, those who hate them around them and probably within them. Self-hate, self-oppression, self-destruction. Serving him without fear in holiness and righteousness. And here's the other component, before him. You're still before the very creator with his gaze upon you all the days of your life. An appropriate awe, an appropriate fear. When the sun begins to rise, we see more clearly such that we can now fear more rightly. How does misplaced fear control you? How does misplaced fear control you? How is it holding you back from serving him? And when we ask this question, it can be a really, really daunting reality, right? Because like we just said, there are a lot of our components of our life. When we look at ourselves, we've missed it. What have you missed? (laughs) What have you been missing in your life? Oh man, not only am I sinful, but I'm situated and now I can't run from the eternal gaze of the God of the universe. How on earth can you live like that? That can be excruciatingly daunting, except for the fact that when Zach sees the sun begin to rise on God's redemption, he not only gets his fear in check, he gets a greater glimpse of God's mercy. Look, look again here at verse, verse 58. Why is it that Zach and, and Liz are given John? It's because of God's great mercy. You get down to verse 72. What is this promise, this oath? this covenant based upon, or what is God promising? It's his mercy. When you get to verse 78, and this is where it starts to reach the climax here, it's because of the tender mercy. And the uniqueness of those two words together, the tender is actually talking about the deep, almost, if you wanted to uh, describe it for us, it's that intestinal deep gut. It's the very deep realities of who God is that yearns to show compassion to his creation. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path or the way of peace. And this leads us to our third and final way this hope begins to change us is that when the sun begins to rise, we walk more peacefully. When the sun begins to rise, we walk more peacefully. And I really wrestled through this point, actually, a lot this week. And what does this actually mean for us? Thinking about what God actually speaks through Zechariah to be kept now for the Christian community, for us even now to read and to learn from. What does that mean? And this is where I landed. Um, In the darkness, you can't have peace. In the darkness, there is no peace. Sure, individually, you can be reclusive, right? You can keep people who are different from you, people who have hurt you at arm's length so they can't bother you, so you no longer have to worry about conflict. So you can keep them at arm's length. In community realities, we, can, we can't have peace, but we can have segregation, where people who are different are kept in nice and neat little groups so they never really have to interact with one another and never even have to have any conflict. That's not peace. But see, when we step into the light, peace is possible. And this is what peace is. Peace is being proximate and engaged with someone who is different, someone who has hurt you. And here's the thing. When you step into the light, you see the differences all the more. You actually acknowledge the differences. You acknowledge when someone's hurt you in the past, you acknowledge that what, was ha- what happened to you was wrong. 
that it was sinful, that it was broken. It's not that we now close our eyes to differences or to past wounds, but you see them all the more clearly, and even still you act for their good. It's not just avoiding their harm. Not the peace we see that God offers in the light. The peace that God offers in the light is that we're proximate and engaging those who are different and who have maybe hurt us in the past, and we're engaging them for their good rather than just avoiding their harm. And man, don't we need that peace today. In a world growing with more and more special interest groups or hyper-individualism and self-centeredness, we need that peace. The only way bullying is going to be stopped in its tracks, the only way racism and egocentrism will be stopped in its tracks is peace in the light. And I think it's only in the Christian faith that this peace is possible. Because God in Christ When God comes to us in Jesus, actually in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in Luke 1, this is exactly what Zach sees when he sees the sun beginning to rise. And when he describes the the coming new day, he doesn't describe a day of vengeance or revenge, does he? Interestingly enough, he describes a day of peace. And look at it. It's it's for those who sit in darkness. All those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. It's actually a universal scope such that when he steps in the light, it leads him to pray for his enemies, his oppressors, and those who hate him. He actually prays for their peace. And it should lead us to ask the question of ourselves, where is your path leading you? Where is your path leading you? Is it making you into a kind of person who's walking towards peace? Now, there's all kinds of questions and scenarios we can talk about here. But I think a good litmus test for us in our own hearts and our own minds is to ask, is there anybody that you can't pray for their peace? Is there anyone in your life that you can't pray for their peace, for them to know peace in Christ? Anyone? Is it someone who's hurt you so terribly in the past you can't even imagine them coming to Jesus? Is someone who's hurt you so desperately in the past you don't want them to come to Jesus? There's someone who's so different from you. They're too conservative. They're too liberal. They're Westboro Baptist. They're, you know, whatever you want to, you whatever your category of, of disgust is. I don't know. You know, we've all got our categories for people we don't want to pray for when we pray for peace. Is there someone that's impossible for you to pray for? Then you're probably not on the path to peace and you got to make sure you're not in the darkness rather than walking in the light. God longs for us to have peace, not sit in the darkness, but walk in the peace. And the only way this peace is possible is if you let him show you everything. If you let his light shine and show you everything. And for that, let's do a quick review. You have to first let him show you there are things messed up in your life, that you've missed the boat, that you are sinful and situated. You then need to also let him show you whose opinion matters most in your life, God's. Not your neighbors, not your bosses, not your families, not yours, God's. And when those two come together and we let the light shine really on the wholesale of our lives, 
Then we come to see to what great lengths God will go to show us mercy in Jesus. Such that when we approach people who are so different than us or have hurt us so painfully in the past, we actually approach them in the same manner that God in Christ approached us when we were his enemies. That's the only way this peace is possible. You have to let the light shine all over the place. And here's what's so amazing about the gospel. That's the reason why this peace is possible in the gospel is because in that moment, you begin to see yourself in your enemies. Because you know that God has, God has forgiven you of the worst, so now you're able to forgive them of the worst. You see a God who actually, who's so other, who became same. He became flesh to embrace what is different and eccentric, us. Such that when we see those who seem really different, Seem really eccentric, I can't get the worldview, and yet you go and you embrace and you pursue peace because God has done that for you. That's how this peace is possible. And look, I know this path of peace, it's not easy. It's beautiful, it has a great promise, it's for our good, and it has a phenomenal destination, but the path of peace is not easy, and some of you have been hurt so many times. You thought the path of peace would be brighter by now, and you're waiting for the sun to rise, and there's this pesky word, yeah, the sun will rise, for the night is almost over, and that word almost is just getting annoying by this point. I want the sun to rise now, and Henry Wadsworth, a gentleman from the 19th century, he knows that longing really, 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 really well. In 1863, he writes a song called Christmas Bells, and it's not a Jingle Bells-esque kind of feel-good tune. It's born out of grief. On Christmas Day in 1863, he writes Christmas Bells. Three years earlier, he found out his wife had died a brutal death in a burning building. On December 1st, 1863, he found out his son, his eldest son, was nearly paralyzed by a gunshot wound fighting in the Civil War. And so when he goes on Christmas Day in 1863 and he hears the church bells ringing and he hears the choir singing, oh, peace on earth and goodwill to men, he looks at the earth and he sees injustice and he sees violence and he's broken by the dissonance of these two. And waiting for the sun to rise, he writes this in his poem. These are two sections, not the whole thing because it's pretty long. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And then it ends with these two stanzas. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fell, the right prevail with peace on earth. Goodwill to men. It's hard to wait for the sun to rise, and the night feels so long. And what's amazing is that Zach never sees the sun rise in his lifetime. Actually, the, the, the glimpse he gets as he looks at his baby boy, John, as he thinks about the one who is to come who is greater. He looks at his son who is the prophet of the Most High as he looks to the son of the Most High who is to come. And then Jesus came and he bore the light. He himself being light, he enters into our darkness. And he not only frees us from the shadow of death, but he enters the very clutches of death 
to save us from the fear of death and hell. To guide our feet, his feet were pierced. To show us the path of peace, he himself became the path of forgiveness of sins. And to make peace possible with God and others to all who embrace the light in Christ. The night is long. But because Jesus endured the longest night on the cross and three days later rose again and has promised to come again, no matter, no matter what's going on, no matter how hard your marriage is, no matter how alone you feel, no matter how chronic the pain, no matter what happened in Ferguson or New York City or Florida a little while ago or California, no matter what's going on at work or in school, in the gospel we can hold on. We can hold on to hope that the sun will rise, for the night is almost over. Returning briefly just to the time when I was with those guys in the Smokies. Like I said, we didn't really sleep a whole lot. We just prayed a lot, I think, um, that night. And at the first sign of dawn, we, we got out of that tent. <laughs> as soon as we could tell what was going on, we got out of the tent. And we started cleaning up, you know, because what wasn't destroyed was absolutely soaked. And as we're cleaning up and the dawn is coming up, creation just took on a whole new life. And I looked around. I still remember just looking at the guys who were huddled together, shaking in fear. Now a whole new confidence because it's a whole new day. The sun had risen and we got to continue down the trail for the rest of the weekend. Look, this is a strange kind of hope. And it's a hope that Zach was pointing us to. It's a hope that Jesus himself offers and the beauty of the hope in the gospel is, yeah, the night is long, but it's temporary. And when the sun rises, it will never set again, ever. The sun will rise. Hold on, for the night is almost over. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am thankful for the hope of the gospel I'm thankful that you're a God who sheds light. I'm thankful that you're a God who pursues us even when we run into the darkness. God, I am thankful for the hope we have in Jesus alone, the light of the world. God, may you give us strength by the power of your Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that spoke through Zechariah. May your Spirit convict our hearts of the areas of our life where we've missed it. God, may you help us fear more rightly. God, may you, may you help us walk in peace. Pursuing those who have hurt us. Pursuing those who are drastically different. To express the same grace and peace that is offered to us in the gospel. Make us resilient in this long night as we look forward to your great return. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, before Jesus went to the cross, he gave his followers a meal, a meal that actually shines the light of the gospel brilliantly to our senses of taste, of touch, and smell. And it's in this meal we remember through broken bread, Jesus' body broken for us, and through common juice, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're new here, let me just walk you through quickly how we do this. Um, we here at Christ Community Invite all who have proclaimed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior to partake in the table.
If you have yet to submit to Jesus Christ um, and embrace the light of the gospel, we ask you now that you would ask that Jesus would continue to reveal himself to you. Um, If you do come, you can come down one of the two aisles, circle around to the back to one of our two communion stations and partake together. But before we do come together, let us remember. On the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, please come.